Hello, my name is Michael Jones and I'm here to present to you another bumper episode of the World Ranking International Football Podcast, where myself and journalist Ryan Walters will preview the round of 16 for the 2023 Asian Cup, all while looking back on what has been fascinating group stage. Later on, I'll be joined again by Ibrahim Mustafa, the author of No Longer Naive, and Zambian football reporter Calvin Kouamba-Chikenge, to similarly go through the knockout games in AFCON 2023. If you enjoy what you hear, please do follow us on our socials. We're on X, TikTok and YouTube at World Ranking Pod, and on Instagram at World underscore Ranking Pod. But for now, please sit back, keep working, driving, commuting, running, or whatever else you do when you tune into a podcast. Enjoy. So thank you very much for joining me, Ryan Walters. Ryan, I've seen you work over a number of years across Korean football in particular, but would you just be able to introduce yourself to the listener and... Tell us a little bit about your love of football and love of Asian football in particular. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me, first and foremost. It all started with the Jeonnam Dragons, basically. A small team. They're now in the second division down on the south shores of South Korea. I used to be an English teacher down there. And when I moved back to Korea, the second time I moved there, I was five minutes from the Dragons Stadium. I got obsessed, as you do. Started a website that instead of just covering them, decided to cover all of K-League, but not on my own because that's way too much. So basically in Korea, there are a lot of English teachers that are really passionate about football. So the idea was to get all of them together in one place. Started K-League United nine years ago. Found people throughout the country that had similar passions. We all covered our local teams. The K-League eventually found me, started working with K-League. And then I got in with my current company now. And uh, I've been a digital nomad for a couple of years, mainly covering the game. Now I've shifted focus to Southeast Asia instead of just Korea. I've been out of Korea for about two years and now I go back and forth between Thailand, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia and and just catch as many games and tournaments as I can. That's absolutely fantastic. I guess it sounds like there's almost a romance to the way that you've fallen into Asian football, in particular Korean football. Any of us that get into it know this, that like when you're in the stands, it's a completely different experience and it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, if you're wearing the right colors, and you're going to get a hug from a stranger when that goal goes in, you know, and I think that that goes a really long way. Being an expat, as folks will tell from the accent, being an American uh, abroad, uh, it crosses cultural barriers instantly, you know, like playing the sport or or just being a fan of it or covering it now. I, I'm immediately put in a room with people that have extremely different life experiences from me, but we all have this one common thing of football. And so, you get that side of it. You get to meet a bunch of different people from a bunch of different walks of life. And and that's always amazing. And then you also get to do things like ride a motorbike through the jungle to get to the stadium in Bali to cover an AFC Cup game. And that's a fun experience and riding back in the dark without any streetlights. But yeah, it's, it's really fun covering the game here specifically because you can go from the stadiums that we're seeing, Qatar, these world-class, lovely stadiums that obviously have a history and have some problems behind them, but the the facilities are amazing. And then you can go to a 30-year-old civic stadium in Indonesia, for example, where the seats are just concrete and the fans do not care. And they just go there and they they are passionate and it's an amazing experience. Uh, It really sounds fun. I mean, I live about 20 minutes from 
Old Trafford, and unfortunately, it's only a concrete jungle that I'll be going through to get to yeah. um, any Champions League matches. But let's start discussing the round of 16. Now, just for a bit of context, where we're at in the Asian Cup. So, the group stages mm-hmm. have just finished, and the round of 16 will be kicking off over the course of the weekend. Our first game that we will be looking at is one of the ones that's really flown under the radar Tajikistan versus the United. Arab Emirates. Both teams had a very interesting journeys to the round of 16. Tajikistan needed a win and they'd drawn their first game, lost the second, then when losing their third against Lebanon until the 80th minute where they scored two late goals to turn it around. Despite this, they've been playing some really good football over the course mm-hmm. of the tournament. And because UAE, not always traditionally a defensive team, but the way the tournament's fallen this time around, they had a man sent off against Palestine, so I think they only had about mm-hmm. 25% possession in that game. And then against Iran, more understandably, they were also having to adopt quite a defensive approach. I'm not sure whether that's what they'll do here again, because they do, especially when it comes to pedigree in Asian football and the players that they've got, they certainly should come into this game as favourites. Oh, unquestionably. I think just when you look at where the majority of the players on each team are, are plying their trade right now, I think UAE are unquestionably going to come in as the favorites here. And like you say, losing to Iran in the group stage that I don't think anybody that loses to Iran in this entire tournament is going to be too upset about it. That's a very quality team. They went out and they did what they needed to do. And they got that result against Hong Kong, China, as we're now having to call them. Hong Kong, China is the full title. Um, And that Hong Kong side showed up to play. I I think for folks that don't know in the region, Hong Kong's going through a lot of changes right now with Jorn Anderson in charge. He was with North Korea for a long time, and then he was with Incheon United and South Korea in the K-League. He's done really good work with that team, and, and the way that they played, getting a win against them wasn't easy. I thought they were really impressive in this group, so... UAE going out and doing work there, and then Palestine's also a very difficult team to break down. So I think it's not unexpected what happened in the group stage for the UAE, and I I think, look, as much as we all love the magic of knockout tournaments, Tajikistan's going to come in as heavy, heavy underdogs in this one, so it's a pretty favorable draw for the UAE. They'll be facing the victors of Iraq versus Jordan. Now, if you look at it for these four teams, it's a massive opportunity for one of them to progress all the way to the semi-finals for teams. I know Iraq won back in 2007, but these are teams that don't typically have the same pedigree as teams that have won it, understandably, over the last 10 years or so. But Iraq been absolutely scintillating in this tournament. They've stolen a lot of the headlines. And what I found really interesting is myself and Sharnan focused a bit on some of the European-based players before the tournament, Zidane Akbal, Ali Al-Habmadi. But it's been some of the domestically based players who have really stood out for Iraq in this tournament. We've had Ali Jassim and Naaman Hussein, who have both been absolutely fundamental and fantastic for this Iraq team. But they beat Japan in the group stage, which was a huge statement victory. But they've also been able to back that up with victories over Vietnam and Indonesia in what proved to be a really challenging group. That group in general was a little bit tougher than... Maybe it looked on paper. Look, Vietnam came out and they had the lead against Japan. I think Iraq going out and playing the way that they did against the Southeast Asian sides that were always going to set up defensively. That's just how they were going to play in this, which doesn't really fit the talent there. And I I think for Iraq, again, Ayman Hussein, you get somebody, you get them in form. Who wants to go up against him right now? He scored five goals in the group stage. 
and just doesn't look daunted by anything in front of him. And I, I think that's the thing about Iraq in general is that maybe on the, the global stage, they haven't done as much, but they have done well in this tournament. They are a power in West Asian football in general. And so I think it's a big ask. But I mean, I think that th this is one of the fun things about the draw here is that we do have two teams from the West going up against each other. And I think Iraq are going to come into this as favorites. I think and one of the things I would say about the group stage is that it was very entertaining, but there weren't a ton of teams that made a bold statement, but Iraq did. They made a very big, bold statement. Their upset of Japan was maybe the upset of the group stage, really. And it wasn't necessarily a David versus Goliath in that way, because again, Iraq has a pedigree. But Japan came in as favorites to win the whole thing. And, and Iraq, just, they just played their game and, and they won in that one. So I think coming into the knockout rounds, I, I think they are a team with a chip on their shoulder and they and they should have it there because they've looked great. I guess just a quick word on Jordan. The group ended in a bit of a whimper with a 1-0 defeat to Bahrain. But before that, they'd drawn South Korea 2-2 and beat Malaysia 4-0 in the opening game, which proved to be a result that neither Bahrain or South Korea could match in terms of how they sort of played them off the park. Mm -hmm. what, what were your impressions, I guess, watching Jordan, especially in those first two games? And what kind of team are they for people who have never seen them before? I think Jordan benefits a lot of the players when they're playing club football. They're in the AFC Cup, which is the Europa League of Asia. It's going to have a different name next year, but I won't go into all of that. It's a terrible name. It's going to be AFC Champions League 2. Couldn't resist. It's horrible. I hate it. ACL that 2. Anyway, terrible. they need like the subtitle to it, like ACL 2 Electric Boogaloo or something like that. That's the only way it's going to be acceptable. But a lot of the players, they've been playing their club football at an international level. And so I think you see that come in and you you see that pedigree, you see that knowledge base, you see that tempo more than anything else. I think that they're capable of playing at this level. And Jordan does pretty well at youth level as well. Jordan has showed up and, and done pretty well in U23 tournaments in the past in AFC. And it's a team that has a ton of support behind them as well. I think if you ever get a chance to go and sit with the Jordanian fans at a match, do it. They are loud. There are drums everywhere. It is so much fun. Highly, highly recommended. But the team itself, I think they're going to be tough to break down. I think we saw that in the group stage. Korea was very frustrated against them. And I think Jordan are just difficult to beat. They're difficult to break down. And that's how I think they're going to come into this one. This is not going to be a high scoring game. I, I don't think. I think 1-0 is going to get it done. This might even go to extra time before it gets to 1-0. Maybe pens. Jordan, they're going to set up defensively, I think, in this one. And Iraq, I think we'll be able to get through it, but it's not going to be easy. We'll now move on to the, the second quarter of the quarterfinals, second semi-final opponent who will face a victory of one of those four teams. Now, the first game is between Australia and Indonesia. And I think it's probably safe to say on paper, this might be the game with the most overwhelming favourites. Australia haven't really had to get out of first gear too much in the group. But that has mm. left fans quite underwhelmed despite the progress. And I was just wondering, are they right to be? Because Australia ultimately were able to progress that through a group with Uzbekistan, India and Syria extremely comfortably. I was talking about statements and I think Iraq made a statement. I think Australia had a chance to make a statement and they didn't really. But I mean, this has kind of been the thing under Graham Arnold the whole time. It's not the Australia that we've seen before. The, it's not always exciting. It's not always sexy, but they are getting the job done right now. And so I think just getting out of the group was what they wanted. It could have been better. <laughs> it could have been more entertaining. There could have been more goals out there. I think especially with Mitch Duke getting hurt, he's the one that was leading the line for them. Yangi was brought in and I thought he looked all right. He looked a little bit off the pace though, because I think 
there was a little bit too much of a reliance on Mitch Duke there. And I think especially we all just kind of want more out of Australia going forward. And when you've got somebody like Bruno Fornaroli, who's barely even seen the pitch, I mean, he's tearing apart the domestic league right now and he can't see the pitch, especially when round of 16 was confirmed going into that third match. Just shuffle everybody up. You know, I mean, like you say, we're talking just after the group stage wrapped up. Thailand made 11 changes last night, 11 changes to face Saudi Arabia. So like if Thailand can do that against Saudi Arabia of all teams, and I think it would have been nice to see a little bit more of that of Australia, but the job's done. They're out of the group and they've got a favorable draw here. So I think there's a lot riding on this match, though. I think you're right. They didn't get out of first gear in the group stage. So if they're going to do it, if they're going to make a statement in this tournament, this is the game. Put some goals on the board against an Indonesian side that is fun, love them, love the young talent there, but they don't exactly keep clean sheets. So th this is the team to do it against. Indonesia is a really interesting one. I mean, one of the players I've been really following is Justin Hubner because he plays for uh, Wolverhampton Wanderers, which is the team I support. But whilst he's had quite an impressive tournament himself, there is mm -hmm. a number of players, young players for Indonesia who have really stood out, whether that's Stroik, but Marcelino Ferdinand in particular. And what's also really impressive and fun is the scenes when they qualified. They only just qualified. They were the lowest ranked third team place to qualify from the groups. It was only a late goal from Kyrgyzstan against Oman, which mm -hmm. allowed them to qualify. It's just an achievement in its own right for them to get to this stage and to have this massive match versus Australia. Indonesia could go home without playing this match and, and be happy with the way things went. And I, I think, look, on, on the way that they got in, this is why consolation goals aren't consolation goals in the group stage. If Sandy Walsh doesn't score that goal late on against Japan, then we're not talking about them being here. So I, I think sticking with it and, and getting those late goals, it's it's just absolutely massive. And, and But for them as a system, PSSI coming into this, they decided that they were going to go young and Boy, has that paid off. I, I think the match against Vietnam, there was a turning of the tide in a lot of ways because under Park Hong So, Vietnam was a powerhouse here in the region. And Truzier hasn't had as much time at the helm. So, I mean, we'll see. But I think that was that was a statement win. And yes, it took a penalty. Okay, but as we saw last night uh, with Saudi Arabia and missing their pen against Thailand, it's not always a guarantee. And also, you then have to hold Vietnam scoreless. So I think for a team that was this young, they played really well in the AFF U23s as well. I like the decision to go young in this tournament because what do you have to lose? If you show up with a bunch of kids and you lose in the group that they had, if you show up with a bunch of veterans, there's really nothing to build on there. So I think with this one, with Shin Young in charge and bringing in a lot of players from outside, bringing in a lot of players from Europe, bringing in a lot of players with Indonesian roots, that's a very controversial thing in Indonesia as well, and not everybody loves that. But I think the way that he's got this team to play with very minimal time is really impressive. And I think, like you say, the European-based players are going to get a lot of the plaudits, and they should. But I also think that the reason I like this team so much is that you have a lot of players based here in the region that are really putting themselves out on a platform for other teams. And, and would, if it's Europe, great. But other, like, I also think the Thai League could be a really good step up for a lot of these guys. The Malaysian Super League could be a really good spot. You know, you got guys like Risky Rito, who's 22 years old, playing for a giant like Prestige Jakarta. This is a massive stage for someone like him. Witan Salaiman's another guy that's really young that I think is really impressive and could step up. So I think 
I, I just really, really like this team because they played well at the senior level at the AFF Mitsubishi Electric Cup, as it's now known, the regional tournament here. At senior level, they played really well at the U23s, and it's basically been that same squad going through. So to see them come onto the Asian Cup, the biggest stage in the region, and yeah, okay, it's one win and scoring a late goal that gets them through, but they're through. So I, I think it's a really big statement of intent in the region that Thailand needs to watch out that Indonesia's coming. Australia will be expected to proceed, and if they do, they'll be playing the victors of a team that is arguably the most high profile in Saudi Arabia versus South Korea. I guess, naturally, Ryan will focus more on South Korea here, but they've not impressed during the group. They do have the boost of having Hwang Hee Chan to be introduced at some point mm -hmm. a bit more into the knockouts and um, he's not really featured so far I was just kind of wondering from the outside is this a, a case of complacency from both teams because Saudi Arabia also have not impressed their win was against a nine-man Kyrgyzstan they just about beat Oman or is this a bigger issue with the structural setup of these sides uh, yeah, I think I'll start with the the one that I'll go a little bit shorter on, which is Saudi Arabia. They're on the other side of the continent, so I don't get to watch them as much. Uh, I, I think Roberto Mancini hasn't had a long time in charge, and I think that that's, that's really playing out here. I think there's a lot of talent there, and th this is a, a tournament that their fans are going to be able to travel in numbers, so they will have a large, large following behind them, and I think that that will help play out. It has been an underwhelming group stage from them, though. They should be playing better than they are. I, I think Mancini made a, a few comments right around when he took charge that maybe some of the players shouldn't be there. It wasn't the best way to come in. So I think uh, th this is a team that, that's got a lot going on. There's a lot of pressure on this team as well with so much focus on Saudi Arabia in general in the footballing world right now. Maybe some of that's playing out, but as I keep saying about the group stage, they made it through. This is not a favorable draw for them though. They're going up against a South Korean side that is just absolutely rife with talent. I've been following Korean football closely for about 10 years now. This is the most talented team. And I just think it's tremendously unfortunate that they have Jurgen Klinsmann as their manager because this is yet another assignment where, look, the dude was amazing on the pitch. Nobody's going to argue against that. I don't feel like I need to hold back. Anybody that follows me on Twitter already knows this. He is one of the most inept managers I've ever seen. He just completely destroyed a generation in the United States, somehow got a job with the KFA, is insisting on playing a flat 4-4-2 that doesn't really suit anybody in the squad. And unsurprisingly, they're not performing well. You know, you've got Sun Ung Min, who's maybe the best form he's ever been in. I, I think he's playing extremely well for Spurs. You've got Yi Kang In, who's playing for Paris Saint-Germain. And through the spine of the team, you just have so much talent. And I think the way that they're set up right now doesn't utilize any of that talent. And when you concede a, what, 110th minute equalizer, whatever it was that Malaysia scored, I think it was like 12 minutes into stoppage time, something like that, and your coach is laughing about it and then goes over and has a jovial conversation with the opposing team manager afterwards, boy, that's not what I want in a group stage game where you're favored to win the tournament and yet you couldn't score an open play goal against a Malaysia side that conceded how many goals against Jordan? You can't score against them from open play. It takes a corner. It takes Ekong In's brilliance and Sonny converting a penalty to score against Malaysia of all teams. And look, I like that Malaysia team, but that defense was all out of sorts this entire tournament. They played a little bit better, but I mean, 81% possession in that game and you can't score from open play. To me, that 
there's so much focus right now on Shogu Sung, uh, who a lot of folks might know from the World Cup. He obviously got his start in Korea with FC Anyang, then went to Jumbuk, and now uh, he's over in Europe plying his trade. He's not the issue. I think the way that they're set up right now, the way that they're playing, there's nothing that's sparking creativity. The midfield can't seem to get the ball up to the forwards in any amount of time or space that's working for anybody. And again, it's not because of the talent that's on the pitch. You know, Huang and Bum has had a pretty good tournament so far, but he can't do it all on his own and he can't be the only fulcrum trying to get it up to the forwards there. And like, it, it's it's been a very frustrating watch. It's so frustrating to be an American and watch Klinsman do what he did there. No, I can certainly tell. And yeah, I mean, just for clarification, South Korea beat Malaysia. They would have faced Japan in the round of 16, mm-hmm. which would have been this absolutely mega tie. But we'll go on to the second half of the draw now. And a team that, you know, we talked about two giants of Asian football that haven't quite reached the levels that people would have expected them to do so. Iran really have actually they're the team that have been putting out Mm. these statement performances across the group they face syria in the round of 16 and syria have been really well coached under hector cooper they made life very difficult for australia they got a draw very respectable draw against uzbekistan almost won the game they're the gold disallowed for offside and then they had a really dramatic victory thanks to omar krubin versus india in the final game so they're going to be coming into this game similar to indonesia on a real high with little Mm -hmm. expectations but do you think they can offer Iran any threat or is this Iran team simply too good? There's my heart and there's my head on this one. Um, my heart says, yeah, because yeah, you want Syria to go out there and and to put in a performance. Um, and they they will, but I, I think you're spot on that this this Iranian side is they're just they're just too good. There's just too much talent there. And I, I think, yeah, there weren't a ton of teams that really came out and and bossed the group stage that really put their authority down in the way that we would have expected. But Iran was one of those teams. And, and I think coming into this match, going against a Syrian side that in many ways is lucky to, will feel, might feel lucky to be there. They've certainly earned it. I don't think it's luck. They definitely earned their position. Um, but it's not going to be the same. This was the expectation for Iran coming into this. It's beyond this is the expectation. So I can only really see one winner in this match, unfortunately. Unfortunately, me too. But let's hope Syria at least make it tough for them. And there's no expectations. Mm. But another team that we'll focus on in the Middle East are Bahrain, who have Japan. And like you said, Bahrain have just been really, really good, especially in the last two games in the group. And they play Japan on Wednesday, the 31st of January. And you talk about them being able to exploit teams' weaknesses because of the, the cohesion and how well they've been coached. Japan certainly have weaknesses. I mean, Japan are just absolutely fantastic to watch under Moriyasu. Mm-hmm. I think, I don't know whether that's all because of him or because of the players, but you never get bored watching Japan. However, there are some real gaps in this team. He did really mix up the defence for their mm-hmm. final game when they defeated Indonesia 3-1, and I think it was maybe a slightly better result, but given the opponent's there's still some serious questions. A lot of questions. I think Ueda came in and did well in that match with the minutes that he got. But it, boy, they just play beautiful football sometimes. Like it, it's like you say, you just you really can't look away. But they didn't really ever impress in the group stage f- 
for me. I, I mean, I, again, I thought Ueda did well in that match against Indonesia, but neither of his goals were world beaters. You probably haven't even seen the highlights because they, you know, one was a pen and the other one was just kind of a tap in. I think that match was a lot of shuffling. Shoko Tanaguchi wasn't in that at all in the defense, so can't avoid it. The question marks are coming around Zion Suzuki between the sticks, and this is a lot to ask of him. I, I think this is a really, really big tournament to just hand him the reins for a, a title that you're expected to be contending for. Nobody's won this more than Japan, and they're up there again expected to if not compete, win. I think they came in as the tournament favorites. I mean, I, I certainly thought they were the favorites coming in. But that back line just looks shaky. And I think this is too much for Zion Suzuki to try to marshal that back line. And he's had a couple of errors that you would expect from a young goalkeeper. And I just, I liked the vote of confidence to put him in there uh, against Indonesia after the Iraq loss. I thought that was a very smart move. I, I liked that saying like, he's our number one, he's our guy. Could have done better on the Sandy Wash goal, though. It's it's a lot of instances where I, I think he looks hesitant coming off of his line sometimes. Young, he's just a young goalkeeper that's making young goalkeeper mistakes. And so I think that's showing through a little bit more than maybe they expected. When it's Japan and you don't hold a clean sheet in the group stage, you, you're going to get a lot of pressure back home. You know, I mean, Vietnam took the lead against them. This is a Vietnam side that riddled with injuries. I mean, you might as well just rip the spine out of that team. They just had so many injuries coming into this tournament and they're utterly in transition and they took the lead at one point. It's not been frustrating in the way that watching Korea has been frustrating. I, I think it's been concerning for the Samurai Blue supporters that it, it, they haven't looked as dominant as you would have expected them to look in any of those games. I mean, I think if you would have told anybody pre-tournament, yeah, they'll get nine points and won't concede. Sure. Okay. Everybody would believe that. But they didn't get nine points and they conceded in every game. Like it, It's not coming into the, the round of 16 the way you would expect them to. Yeah, we move on to our final two quarterfinal matches. Now, Palestine versus Qatar is, given the circumstances, um, mm. what the Palestine team have been having to play through, I think I heard in November that the team is having to make their way to Jordan to train and they've had all kind of obstacles in their way, but they had this phenomenal, phenomenal victory over Hong Kong in the final game. They had a brilliant performance versus the UAE and that was all after a 4-1 defeat in the opening game to Iran, which, you know, there's no shame in that, but it's it could be a very demoralising defeat, but they've come back in such fantastic fashion and... Qatar have cruised through their group, winning every game, but I think this is going to be their biggest test for them. Boy, Palestine had every reason to just pack it in after that first game. With everything that's going on with the players in the squad, I mean, just keeping it specifically focused with the players in the squad, they have had to endure so much. I'll give a little plug if I can. The Asian game has had a lot of really great interviews specifically with some of the players on the Palestinian team. And and to just to be able to show up and play through any of that in general, I, I think is a credit to the team. And like you're saying, to bounce back from a loss and, and then get into the knockout rounds, it, it's it's amazing. And look, it's one of the reasons that we love this sport is that it's this tiny little glimmer of positivity and, and what has otherwise been a very horrendous couple of months for, for Palestine. So that side of it, 
I, I think is, is the positive side. I, I think the negative for them coming into this is that they're going against the house and they're going against the guitar side that just, they look the part, you know, Al Haedas scored what is going to be the goal of the tournament. I just so sweetly struck on a corner. Like they, they they're scoring for fun when they want to, they, this is a team, I think, when they won the Asian Cup last time out, it surprised some folks. I'd include myself in that. I didn't necessarily expect them to win that one. I thought they'd be good. But now, five years on, they have changed their status in the region. And I think the group stage that they had shows why they're who they are now. And again, and again they will come in as very, very heavy favorites in this one. And in my opinion, rightfully so, because it really just looks like when they want to score, they do. When they're in the mood, they're very difficult to beat. Yeah, that Al Haydos goal was reminiscent of, I think it was Ribariba and Robin in the Champions League about 13 years ago, where it's direct all the way to the edge of the area. And Al Haydos has just bullied it. But I think this one has almost better technique in it. And I don't know if it's harsh to call Qatar flat track bullies, but what I do kind of mean by that is they're very good against the teams they're expected to beat. And I think mm -hmm. that's one thing that can certainly take with confidence into this game versus Palestine. And move on to the last game. Uzbekistan versus Thailand is maybe similar to Tajikistan versus UAE, but maybe even more so because this is going to be one of the last round of 16 ties to be played. Is one of those fixtures that could slip under the radar a bit. And I'm really excited to hear more about Thailand from you, Ryan. But a quick word on Uzbekistan first, because they may mm. have the breakout star of the tournament in Abasek Faizulev, who came off the bench versus Syria. He starred in the game versus India. And Uzbekistan have been really unlucky with injury. So a lot of their main attacking players have even not made it, like Shamorodov haven't made it to the tournament, or Sergei mm -hmm. have had to pull out recently. Yeah, And a lot of the burden is going to fall on Faisalov now. Faisalov is playing in Russia at CSK Moscow, I believe. And he's made quite an impact in the Russian league too. But this guy is a really special player and he's going to be critical for any hopes Uzbekistan have of getting past Thailand. To have such a young man step up, I think the last U-20s, I think he was the golden ball winner and has just looked the part as well his intelligence on the pitch i think is what's the most impressive a young guy 19 20 21 year old we expect them to run for days but i think his footballing iq is just it, it's off the charts for someone of his age i think it's just a joy to watch him make decisions position himself where he knows he should be and he's going to cause a lot of headaches for that tie defense this is the other side of it as well that i, I think if you look at it on paper of Uzbekistan versus Thailand, then you would think that th this is one that Uzbekistan will do well in. But Thailand didn't concede a goal. They didn't concede a goal in the group stage. And this is not really what we know Thailand for. Thailand's usually free-flowing attacking, especially when they were under Mano Poking, who just was, I almost said left. He didn't leave. It was a whole thing. But before Ishii came in, they, they played much more attacking. And so I think coming into this one, Uzbekistan's really going to have to work to get some looks at goal against a Thai side that had the third choice keeper in against Saudi Arabia who saved a penalty. So, I mean, this is a team that's feeling very, very confident defensively. And, and that's not, again, that's not usually what we would expect out of Thailand. And that's not a lot of the 
the players that we would usually talk about, but they, they've been surprisingly good defensively. And so Uzbekistan has a big task in front of them in that regard. Well, thank you so much, Ryan. And that is it for our round of 16 preview and looking at the group stages and what's been a really, really entertaining Asian Cup so far. Now, the episode will be coming out on Saturday, basically a good 24 hours before the round of 16s even start. So it feels like forever now until the football gets back underway, even though it's not. But I know you've been working on the tournament a lot, Ryan. So, yeah, I really hope that you're able to rest up a little bit before the frenzy of the knockout starts. But, yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks. And, um, again, for folks that aren't into it, Asian football's fun. Come join us. And I think that leads us on nicely into our second half of the podcast with Ibrahim Mustafa and Calvin Chikenge. If you enjoy hearing Ryan speak as much as I did, I really recommend you follow him on X at Mr. Ryan Walters, where he consistently reports great content from East and Southeast Asia. But for now, let's turn our attention on to a thrilling Akon 2023, which has truly shocked the world. I'm really excited to have Ibrahim Mustafa back. You may remember Ibrahim joined us for both of our preview episodes for AFCON. His book, No Longer Naive, tells the story of African countries in football over the past 50 years or so. Would you say that's right, Ibrahim? Probably longer now if we're going back to Egypt qualifying for the uh, second ever World Cup in 1934. So yeah, about 90 years now. So <laughs> Yeah, that is yeah, a lot longer, a... isn't it? And I'm delighted to be joined for the first time by Calvin Komba Chikenge. Calvin is a African reporter from Zambia. You've done work for a number of publications, both domestically and internationally, including The Guardian. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be part of the podcast. Yeah, looking forward to a wonderful discussion tonight. Yeah, me too. Because, I mean, it's funny, Ibrahim, because we made all our predictions and I thought they were quite safe predictions before the tournament started. But I don't think anybody could have foreseen the crazy tournament that we're about to embark on and the stories that have been told without even reaching the knockouts. However, we'll start with one of the giants that positively surprised us, who we maybe thought would struggle a bit more, and they're your beloved Nigeria. It was a surprisingly controversy-free group stage for them. I think especially given the context of others, it wasn't like they didn't have the bumps in the road, albeit not fully convincing, yet they ended up finishing on seven points. But... Victor Simeon isn't yet really fully firing. What have you made of them so far? And how are you feeling going into this first round of 16 match against Cameroon, which is a historic tie too? Nigeria, not really, we're not really cooking yet. I think uh, it's fair to say the opening game against Equatorial Guinea was a bit of a stalemate. I mean, I mean, obviously, as we got went on to see with Equatorial Guinea, it actually proved to be quite a good result. But I think there was a bit of sort of consternation after that, a bit of a, there's some murmurs about, hmm, what 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 are Nigeria really doing? Like, is this is this good enough? But like I say, given what Equatorial Guinea went on to do after that, so like I say, it's a good result. But um, yeah, Osimhen, like you say, he's misfiring, but he has got he's got a goal. He got a goal in that game against Equatorial Guinea. But yeah, he's had some chances, some big chances, and people are quite concerned that he's not quite finding the target like he 
has been in Serie A for the last few years. But he's not the only one. I mean, there are other players in that team, there are other players in that attack, and no one else is really contributing either. Got so far is his goal in the first game, a penalty in, against Ivory Coast, and an own goal against Guinea Bissau in the final game. And there's not really a lot in terms of to get excited about in front of goal, but hopefully that can begin as the tournament gets to the more crucial stages, I think. At the back, you think like people like Bassi and Aina have looked really good. Trustecon missed the last game. He's was been really good for the in the opening couple of games. And so yeah, it's been for all the worries about what's going forward at the back, I think pretty secure. So you'd hope Nigeria might have enough defensively to keep them out and maybe, maybe start scoring at the other end. Yeah, I think one of the statistics that may concern Nigeria is that record against Cameroon in AFCON finals as well. But fortunately, this is a round of 16 game. But yeah, coming on to you, Calvin, looking at Cameroon, I mean, that finale versus the Gambia was just absolutely incredible. They were 2-1 down with just a matter of minutes to go. Then they scored two goals in stoppage time. Then it looked like Gambia had equalised, albeit it was the hand of... Gambia, I think it's called at the moment. I've seen loads of different names. However, one of the big storylines with them too has been the story of Andre Nana, who's only appeared in that one game where he conceded all three shots on target against Senegal too. So to say it's been a smooth journey for Cameroon to get to the round of 16 is just a complete lie. It's been far from it. Well, it's, it's going to be an interesting one. Coming to the Cameroon versus Nigeria game, oh my word, um, I'm, I'm super excited to watch this game. Uh, I'm super, super excited because I'm a neutral and uh, watching that game will be like just sitting on the edge of my seat. And I know it's going to produce quality entertainment, like the quality, beautiful African football that we are expecting. Both of them haven't really been impressing, uh, impressive in this tournament so far. I was personally expecting Nigeria to have like the most goals in the group stage, but it didn't happen. Same as Cameroon, and they didn't start well. But coming into this game, you know, these are two big giants in African football. And when they meet, forget about form, forget about everything else, just forget about it. It's going to be a, a whole different story when they clash tomorrow. So... Yeah, I'm just looking forward to a very beautiful game tomorrow. It's a real heritage fixture. I guess one of the opportunities, aside from just getting past this game, is that the victor will be playing Angola versus Namibia. Now, my word, I mean, Angola in particular, winning a group with Burkina Faso, a team that have been fantastic at recent Afghan additions, Algeria, who came in as one of the favourites, Algeria, who Angola got that draw against, and that was a real building block before that dramatic win against Mauritiana and then against Burkina Faso. They're now going into a game as real favourites against Namibia, but Namibia proved they're going to be no pushovers whatsoever here. I think Angola have been the real surprise package in this tournament. I mean, they have been producing goals in their games, really, which is people didn't really expect that sort of coming into the tournament, that they'd be so adventurous in the way that they play. Spirited display against Algeria. Again, they were bold. I mean, probably could have been two or three down before they got back into it. But, you know, they managed to salvage something from that. The Mauritania game, they show they will give you chances because they look so open in that game, but were really sort of impressive going forward. That was, I mean, the sort of the sleeper game that few people expected to be game of the tournament standard. And it's that it was, it was so entertaining. Mabu Lula, who plays for them, he looks like a right handful. Yeah, dangerous. Dalo as well is a player wasn't on my radar before. He looks really good. And another dangerous one that could be probably going to give that Namibia defence a bit of trouble. And the goalkeeper, Nebula, 
dodgy, dodgy in places, but you know he's done, he's done a job for them. Um, he's lucky to be playing. Probably should have been sent off in their final group game, but to uh, avoid a red card, once you get a yellow. But I, I mean, I make Angola favourites in this one. I mean, Namibia have done well, but I think this is probably be possibly the end of their journey. I think. I mean, they were given a run around a bit by South Africa, weren't they? In one of their games. Yeah, Calvin. How have Namibia been able to do this? Because. The only game I watched fully was that game against South Africa where they got absolutely torn apart. But they've shown a real spirited display in these other two games. So I was just wondering what's worked for Namibia and how have they been able to really defy the odds by reaching the knockout stages? Namibia has really been building this team. They've been together for quite some time now. And um, I would like to make mention that these players uh, have been playing together in the regional tournament. We call it the Southern African Castle of Football Association. It's called COSAFA. So Namibia, Angola, Zambia, South Africa, we are always playing each other all the time in this tournament and they know each other. And then when you look at the, the Namibian squad, majority of the players play in South Africa in the in the DSTV Premiership. The likes of Peter Shaludile has been on fire since, I think, Two seasons now, for two seasons straight, he's been winning the top scorer in South Africa with Mamelod Sundowns. And I'm, I'm sure you're aware of what Sundowns has done on the African continent. And majority of the players play for these uh, South African clubs that have been doing so well in the in, uh, in, in the in the CAF Champions League and CAF Confederations Cup. Porto, of course, uh, their captain, if I'm not mistaken, no, one of the defenders, has been fantastic in the in the DSTV Premiership. And it's not, it comes as no surprise for me. Remember in the qualifiers, they almost denied Cameroon an opportunity to qualify for this AFCON. Many people are quite, are quite uh, underrating them. But for me, I feel like they're really, really uh, a team that people should be scared to, to, to face because these players have been together for a long time. And uh, what is more shocking is that they do not have an active league in their country. And look at what they've done. They're in the, in the round of 16, you know doing better than uh, a team like Zambia that has uh, a number of players playing in decent leagues in Europe. So that team spirit, the brotherhood in that team, they've been together, they know each other very well, majority of them are coming from the same clubs, is what has made them reach where they are today. So they're really a, a, a force uh, a force to be reckoned with. I wouldn't really rule them out of this competition just yet. Well, I didn't realise the sort of nature of the derby as well. It just adds another really intriguing element to this tie. And they're Saturday's games. And if we go on to Sunday's games, we will start with Egypt versus DR Congo, which is at the other side of the draw. And this, I think, from what I'm aware of, is the first time two teams have ever played each other in an international knockout competition, or at least like the main international competition on the continent or a World Cup, for example, where neither team has won a group stage game. Now, I guess coming to you, Ibrahim, because you were quite excited about DR Congo. And for what it's worth, they have actually performed relatively well from what I've seen in glimpses of their group games. I know that they had a lot of control of the game against Zambia at times, but they've just not really been able to have those finishing touches. You know, Silas and Yuan Visa have come to their aid at times too. The game against Zambia, they were really good in the latter stages of that game and you thought the goal was coming and it just didn't arrive. I just don't know what happened in front of goal. They were just a bit just a bit, bit nervous perhaps, maybe a bit apprehensive about 
you know, just putting the ball in the back of net. Even Visa, he had a great chance where he was one-on-one with a keeper and tried to square it rather than shoot. It was uh, it's an interesting game. I thought they were good value for a win in that game, but they ultimately ended up drawing that one. And putting a great performance against Morocco. Everyone's been talking about Morocco being this, this one of the standout sides in the tournament. And I think the Congo held them, kept them at bay for most of it. I mean, when and Silias came on and got the equaliser, really good goal there as well. Well worked by the DR Congo just they're not getting lucky with these sort of things they've actually there's a bit of finesse about them when they're moving forward but yeah I mean I didn't see the game against Tanzania but be interesting I think they'll give Egypt a tough time in that game and it'll be difficult to call based on what we've seen so far I'd say yeah we'll move on to Egypt very shortly Calvin I just think it's a good time to reflect on Zambia and I know it's probably a bit of a sensitive topic at the moment but Zambia also alongside DR Congo and Egypt had this possibility of not winning a match and not losing, and still progressing. They would have had a better goal difference than Ivory Coast, and they would have taken that third-place qualifying spot. What's the reflection been on the tournament? I was really excited to see Zambia and Davram Grant. I'd spoke Frankie Masonda before the tournament. The mood was really high. What's the reaction been to it all? And how costly was that draw against and the red card against Tanzania? We we did talk to Avram Grant after the game. Well, he's he actually blamed the the referee from Benin for ruining Zambia's chance of you know progressing. But of course, the majority of us back home we understand he went with a very inexperienced team. The only most experienced player that has played uh, in the Afcon was Topila Sunzu, uh, the man that scored the winning goal for Zambia in 2012. So. Personally, I wasn't really expecting that uh, anything from the team. I just wanted them to go and enjoy and, you know, get the experience, come back, regroup, let's qualify for the next AFCON, then we can compete because these are young players, first of all, very young, and they're just starting their careers. And some of them, this is when they're like hitting the international stage. So the expectations weren't very high from uh, some of us on my behalf, of course. Yeah. And Avram Grant told us to manage our expectations even from the first, uh, before the tournament started, which I took very seriously and didn't want to have high hopes. Yeah, but we're happy with the team, uh, with what they did, especially against Morocco. I think we messed it up in the first two games. We should have at least uh, won one game, especially against Tanzania. But of course, the red card and, you know, too many yellow cards. I think maybe we can agree with Avram Grant that that's where our chance was ruined because we had no chance against Morocco. But we did very well. Against Morocco, that's the game that the team played much, much better. We could see them, you know, progressing forward, launching attacks and even having shots on uh, on target. And uh, I think next next year, Zambia will be a team to, 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 to look out for. Uh, we might just pull up another 2012 thing because this thing happened again. We have this habit of doing our work with all the experienced players and then we start afresh after achieving success. So remember in 2012, after winning the AFCON, almost every player retired. And now we started afresh with these under-20s. They won the, the 2017 AFCON under-20 and now they're seniors. So after this experience, next year uh, is coming home. <laughs> Big statement. <laughs> I think it's really refreshing to hear because, yeah, I guess there's that there's that real maturity, not just from yourself, but like from you said, from Avram Grant, there's that recognition that this is a longer term project. And you've seen how quickly teams have kind of rushed to decisions, which we'll come on to, I guess, a bit more in a bit, especially in the case of Ivory Coast. But we'll move on to our... Uh, 
next game, which will be Equatorial Guinea versus Guinea. Now, Calvin, this is a mouthwatering tie because Equatorial Guinea have just been pulling up trees all over Africa, really, in terms of their performances. They have truly defied the odds. I mean, people did think they'd have a good chance of qualifying, albeit finishing third. But they started with the draw against Nigeria and then they demolished Guinea-Bissau and then they absolutely battered Ivory Coast. They will be so confident ahead of Guinea when I think before the tournament, people would have had Guinea as the pre-match favourites, potentially. Guinea was the favourite heading to this tournament. Yeah, but what Equatorial Guinea has done is incredible. Really, really incredible. And for a team, uh, you know, playing, you know, the first game in the tournament against favorites, you know, giants of Africa like Nigeria, and then you just hold them like that. You even score first against Nigeria. That speaks a lot. That tells you a lot, um, a lot about the character in this team. And, you know, look at their, their, their main man, the talisman, who is, you know, carrying them top scorer with five goals so far in the tournament. And they've been banging in goals. That's, that's the beauty about that team. They're, they're banging in goals. And they're also defending. So it's it's more like a well-balanced team and team spirit is very, very good. The brotherhood, of course. I keep talking about the brotherhood. With the Africa Cup, it's not about how many stars you have. It's about the team unity and the brotherhood in the team that will win you that Afghan. If you are ready to break a leg for your country, you're going to win that trophy. But if you are going there as a superstar and wanting to shine because you're doing it in Europe, forget about this tournament. Yeah, so... For Guinea, almost everyone is ready to break a leg. I can tell you this. I would say Equatorial Guinea would be the favorite in this team. Guinea didn't start the tournament very well. I, I, I do not think they stand a chance against Equatorial Guinea, to be honest. The winner of that game faces the winner of Egypt versus DR Congo. And if you're an Equatorial Guinea supporter or a new one from this tournament that I'm sure many people are, I'm sure they'll be looking the lips at the prospect of facing a team that haven't won a game. And you never know. I think Egypt, DR Congo, could go all the way to penalties at this rate and would still take a lot of penalties to get a winner. Moving on to Monday's ties. The first one is Kate Verdi versus Mauritania. Kate Verdi, Ibrahim are a team that have arguably stolen the thunder a bit from Equatorial Guinea because they tend to be playing after them. But they start in that group against Egypt. I mean, they made... Six or seven changes against Egypt in the final game, yet they still were winning for parts of the game and then they got the last minute equaliser. But before that, they defeated Ghana at the death and they'd absolutely battered Mozambique with a wonder goal from Bebe too. And I think they will be quite heavily going into this game as favourites. No, I totally agree. They should be going in as favourites. I mean, getting that win over Ghana was just such a boost anyway. I mean, they would have... I've been hoping, I think I've, I said in the preview pod that I did su- suggest that there was there was an upset to be had there with Ghana. I didn't think they'd come into the tournament as well prepared as they should have been and so it proved. And uh, yeah, once Cape Verde got that win and in such dramatic fashion as well late on, it really sort of kickstarted. It gives them that sort of spring to go on and getting the se- the second game being against Mozambique as well was exactly what they, exactly what they would have wanted. They went out there and they just, took them apart and scored a couple of fantastic goals in that. And then again, like I say, just the motivation after that to know that you're through already and you have a, with a game to spare and you're playing Egypt, you can make changes and still battle it out to get a draw against them. I mean, yeah, they're definitely going as favourites. Not much to say about Mauritania. But they've done fantastically well to get to obviously beating Algeria. Is just an incredible result. But I just want to talk about Koita's shooting. 
that the goal he scored against uh, Angola was just, just unbelievable. And it, he hinted at it in his uh, in the earlier game in the Burkina Faso, I think it was. And uh, yeah, he was just shooting from everywhere. And it was they were they were really good shots as well. I mean, the keeper was, were, was testing the keeper, and then he got his goal in the second game against Angola. And uh, more of that, just just to get him shooting again. Yeah, he's playing at Santry then in Belgium, and he's certainly not one of the players I knew anything about before the tournament. But he's been a bit of a breakout star. But you made a really interesting interesting point I thought Ibrahim Cape Verde were able to rest all these players and are coming into this round of 16 game fresh now the same cannot be said for Mauritania who had to work so hard in the heat against Algeria I think whatever happens now it's been a miraculous tournament but that kind of belief against a team as big as Algeria they'll be looking to replicate against Cape Verde where the emphasis will be different on Cape Verde and Mauritania may have a slight chance here Mauritania, you know, I don't know how I can describe it, but they have this fighting spirit that really impressed me. Uh, they look like a team that really wants to fight and they really want to do it. But I feel like their their, their qualification was was quite a miracle. It wasn't meant to happen, but it happened. So, <laughs> yeah, but going into this game against Cape Verde, um, we know what Cape Verde has been doing since 2013. They've been fantastic in, in, in the AFCON. And they've continued. They haven't, you know, turned uh, turned down on their performance. They've been doing well, and we've seen them making it out of the group stage all the time um, since 2013. So that speaks a lot. Uh, they have the experience in the team, and um, I really fancy them to go all the way to the quarterfinals or something. Yeah, so they 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 have a better chance of going in because if you can have a team that you know will change seven players against a very experienced and you know, a team full of superstars like Egypt and you still you still hold them. That that speaks a lot. So I, I feel Kevin really has a bigger chance of winning this game. Well, they'll face the winners of Morocco versus South Africa, which takes place on the 30th, which I believe is the Tuesday. So that's the last day of the round of 16. Morocco versus South Africa. I mean, Morocco, in my opinion, Ibrahim, have been kind of sliding under the radar a bit. They've not had the shock defeats but at the same time they've not had the really really convincing victories I mean they did they were quite comfortable against Tanzania in the first game but it's not been plain sailing and there was all the controversy against DR Congo which has kind of marred any success they've had ever since yeah like you say that first game against Tanzania I mean they were they were expected to win that game yeah I mean there's and then they did it comfortably like you know so of course they've avoided the shocks that other teams have had but you know, I mean, is it a shock that they beat Tanzania? Not really. The DR Congo game, they weren't fantastic. They were caught out at the end there as DR Congo battled bravely on. And then all the controversy at the end has completely overshadowed it. So, yeah, and, you know, they got the win against Zambia. But it'd be interesting to see how South Africa approached the game because when they beat Namibia, they were fantastic in that game. And South Africa looked like a tough team to break down. South Africa will fancy their chances in that game. Yeah, Calvin, this must be a game that you're really intrigued by I'm sure because you got to see firsthand Morocco against Zambia and like you said sort of similar to what Ibrahim said you know Zambia did well against Morocco but a team in the south of Africa South Africa who have really surprised people again a lot of players based domestically similar to Namibia having a lot of players playing in the South African league but the atmosphere the team spirit Hugo Bruce seems to build a real winning mentality here and I personally think this could be one of the biggest upsets in the round of 16, but 
do you think there is enough individual quality or collective quality? I know you said it's not about the stars, but this is a big ask for South Africa. Yeah, it, it, it's a big match. Uh, South Africa will be heading the, into this game high on confidence. Remember, uh, the first team to beat uh, Morocco after their historic World Cup run was South Africa. And they did it. They did it um, in, in Johannesburg, if I'm not mistaken. This was just like weeks uh, a month, yeah, it was a month after the the FIFA World Cup in in Qatar, and Morocco was beaten with all their stars by this same South African side. So you have a South African team that has about ten players coming from Mamelodi Sundowns, and Mamelodi Sundowns are champions of Africa. They've been playing in the African game uh, in the African CAF Champions League. They won the um, the the African Super League, which the newly introduced African Super League. All these players are very experienced uh, when it comes to playing in Africa. And this is what is giving them an advantage heading into this game. Uh, very experienced side, players that know each other very well, coming from Mamelodi Sundowns. They've been doing brilliant um, on the continent. And and then they have a very good record against uh, North African sides. We also what South Africa you know, did to Tunisia. They, they, they played very well. And as well, they're meeting Morocco and it's going to be a cracker. I wouldn't give Morocco an outright win in this game. A draw, maybe, or even an upset. They might lose this game. Uh, based on what I've seen in the group stage, that Morocco hasn't been impressive. Against Tanzania, Tanzania just gave them too much respect, and they capitalized on that. Against Congo, Congo gave them a run. That game would would have easily ended into a loss for for the Atlas Lions against Zambia as well. We gave them a little bit of respect in the first half. Second half, we took the game to them and we almost got our goal. And now they're playing a South African side that is very confident. They are very very confident, and it's one team that doesn't give their opponents respect. So it promises to be an exciting game. The final two games that we're going to look at of the round of 16 now the first one we we started with an absolute belter in terms of giants coming to play each other in afcon in cameroon versus nigeria and we've somehow been gifted another with ivory coast they were four nil down to equatorial guinea when they lost it looked like they were all but out of the tournament they only needed you know one of ghana or Zambia, for example, to pick up one point, or Algeria even to pick up one point at the time. Two of them, let alone any other team winning, which happened around them too, for them to progress. But some miraculous way, they've made it through. However, Jean-Louis Gasset hasn't, the manager. He has been sacked. They've gone for Herb Renard, the Zambia coach in the meantime, Calvin. So I guess it, I guess it's probably best that I come to you on this one, Calvin, that they've gone for Renard and they've ended up with... MS Bay, I believe he used to play for Reading back in the day. What on earth has gone on with Ivory Coast? And are they actually better with Gasset after what we've seen in the group stages? I don't know what is happening to them, but they haven't really been a side that I would say they even deserve to be in the in, in the round of 16, to be honest. They didn't do much. Even their first game, I think it was just because the fans were pushing them and, you know, the excitement of being the opener, they just had to win. They had no option, but Throughout the the last two games in the group stage, they haven't really been impressive. And uh, meeting a whole giant like Senegal, who has won all their matches in the group stage, they've been doing very well. They don't stand any chance. And then you have a team that has no coach. I think it has to do with the administration. You know, the, the, the Ivorian FA has to put their house in order. 
because I mean, you, you, you can't be in a situation where you want to even request him for a coach. Who does that <laughs> in a serious tournament like the Afcon? I, I feel that was that was quite embarrassing to say the least. It was embarrassing. They should be serious. The the, the, the Ivorian FA. I I take the blame on the Ivorian FA. But coming to 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 the team and the depth in the squad, I, I think they're really missing uh, players like Wilfred Zaha and you know Sebastian Hala, who's been injured. Um, I don't understand why you know a player like. Wilfred Zaha would be left out of the Afghan. You know, he was there when uh, they were playing the qualifiers. I think the first match against Zambia, they played Zambia in Abidjan. And uh, I was privileged to watch that match. Wilfred Zaha destroyed Zambia. He was brilliant. And I was expecting, I was excited to watch Ivory Coast with uh, Wilfred Zaha there, uh, Sebastian Hala in that team. But unfortunately, it didn't happen. So I don't know if maybe if Sebastian Haller will be back. Maybe he can bring in some firepower up front. But pres- at present, they stand no chance against Senegal. Absolutely no chance. Yeah, it's worrying signs, isn't it, Ibrahim? And I guess, you know, you will have watched that Ivory Coast versus Nigeria game and Senegal could, I guess, look to adopt a bit of a template from what Nigeria did to stifle Ivory Coast and appear to kind of just knock the stuff in out of them really but Senegal themselves have been so impressive I think one of the refreshing things about this tournament for Senegal is Sadio Mane he was inspirational when they won the last AFCON and then his absence was the big storyline at the World Cup in Qatar Ibrahim but just coming back to you on Senegal do you think there's been this, a new guard an old guard Elio C seems to be managing it really effectively Calvin was saying earlier about I mean, Senegal do have the stars, but it's also about that brotherhood, that sort of connectivity and that togetherness. Senegal seem to have it. There's no sort of talk of any sort of dissent or anything like that. It all seems to be working very harmoniously with them at the moment. And that's probably what's helping them play as well and do as well as they're doing. We'll move on to our final round of 16 game. And I think two teams that have, quietly but quite happily flown under the radar here, Calvin, are Burkina Faso and Mali. Now, me and Ibrahim talked about Burkina Faso before the tournament, about how they'd always had this kind of AFCON heritage, but had struggled for form in the past year or so. And Mali, conversely, had been quite impressive going into the tournament. But it's got a real feel of, unlike Ivory Coast and Senegal, it's got a real feel of a 50-50 match. Which team have you been more impressed with so far? I would say I've been impressed with Mali, but both teams, Mali and uh, and Burkina Faso, I, I call them the unlucky teams. They've always been unlucky when it comes to the Afghan because um, they will start so well in the tournament. They can even reach the semifinals, but they never progress and they never win it. But I, I would put my money on Mali. They, they seem to understand each other. They know how Haidara moves. They know how the the guy from Red Bull Suspect moves, and I'm I'm happy that this time around they do not have injuries in the team, which has always been like the problem in in, in the Malian side. Every time they're in a big tournament like this, one of the key players gets injured, or so, you know they will just miss the tournament. But I'm happy all their players are there, and they are really a good side. Two players that have really stood out, one for each team, at very kind of different ends of the career at the moment is Bertrand Traore, who everybody knows from his time at Chelsea, Aston Villa, 
And then Lassine Sinioko, a player who is just 24 years old and he spent his whole career at Auxerre in France, which has been responsible for producing some brilliant African players over the generations. I'm sure Ibrahim, one of the players, I think it's a player on the front cover of your book, Kalalu Fadiga, if I'm right in saying he was a big player at Auxerre about a good 20 years ago or something when Senegal were in that 2002 World Cup. But I think on that note, that's all of our round of 16 games covered so comprehensively by the two of you. So thank you so much from me. And yeah, just wondering if there's anything else you wanted to add or anything you're particularly looking forward to in the round of 16. You know, I'm quietly, quietly confident that Nigeria could go far in this tournament, really. I mean, potentially Morocco in the semi-finals would be quite a tough one, but you got beat, you got to beat those teams if you want to win it, I guess. So yeah, kind of what I'm looking forward to. Good run from Nigeria, hopefully. Absolutely. Well, Unfortunately for you, Calvin, and I really don't mean to rub salt in the wound, but the team that you support is no longer in the tournament. Is there any other teams that you'll be particularly focusing on for the rest of AFCON or supporting? The Kosafa region, of course, the southern African part of Africa. I mean, the southern part of Africa. I've been doing quite a lot of stuff. The Kosafa tournament has really, you know, shown that we can actually compete in this competition. I'm very happy we have, you know, Namibia there. We have Angola. We have South Africa. So these are my teams. I'm going with these guys. Yeah, but what I'm looking forward to see in this tournament is the, you know, the excellent performance of the video assistant referee. Yeah, it's been fantastic. I haven't seen any blunders so far. And of course, the refereeing has been awesome. Of Although Avram Grant has, you know, been you know, telling us that the, the, the Beninese, uh, the, the referee from Benin messed up Zambia's game against Tanzania. But I feel uh, the officials of the AFCON have really done well and uh, they've done a, a commendable job. Video assistant referee. I think people should come and learn how to operate that thing <laughs> in Africa. I'm very, I'm very happy. I'm very happy with how you know effective it's been in in the Afcon, and I'm I'm hoping to see you know that kind of performance you know continuing in the as as the tournament progresses. It's actually been really refreshing because um, that's one of the things that people African football at times they do say oh yeah the refereeing can be a bit chaotic and a bit mad and a lot of people sort of watch to see those errors and things like that but like you say the like you say Calvin the uh, VAR and the refereeing has actually been top notch there's not been any, any major blunders or howlers or anything ridiculous that people can sort of say ha hey, look that's African football for you it's all been very smooth and far smoother than us who watch Premier League football have had to contend with VAR over the last two years, three years. Aside from the major European leagues, probably being able to learn a thing or two from the officiating at AFCON. I mean, the one that sprung to mind was probably one of the easiest decisions for VAR, but just that perfect example of the communication and how it was done effectively when it was that hand of Gambia and the VAR brought the referee over, still went through all the correct protocol, even though it was such a blatant handball. Referee took his time, made sure it was the right decision because it was such an important one. And yeah, I think it's really added to the viewing experience that there hasn't been a sense of dismay with officials. But I'll let you both go. Thank you so much. And I really hope to speak to you both again soon later in the tournament. Cheers, Michael. Thank you. Thank you very much, Michael. Had a good time. Thank you very much for listening. And I sincerely hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please rate us or thumbs us on whatever podcasting platform you've listened to us on and follow or subscribe both on here and on our social medias as it will really help us grow. I'll be back next week when myself and a panel of guests will review the first round of the knockout games in both the Asian Cup and AFCON. But until then, goodbye for now.